Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. This week we are discussing The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, first published in, of course, The Sketch Magazine on September 26, 1923. We're going to do what's become our traditional synopsis of this rather traditional mystery puzzle. So we'll start with the victims, and I feel like we've had a bunch of these stories where there haven't been many victims in the recent past. This one has many victims, because there are many... Many victims. There are many murdered people, so I'll start off with the first one. And that's Sir John Willard, who is a well-known British archaeologist running an expedition on a lesser-known 8th Dynasty Egyptian pharaoh. And upon opening the tomb of this pharaoh, who's named Menhur-Ra, he soon after keels over from a heart attack. Followed by the death of Mr. Bleibner, an American financier who he's basically a dabbler in whatever the most popular trend of the moment is, in this case, Egyptian archaeology. But he has a ton of money, and so he's financing the expedition. And after Sir John Willard dies, Mr. Bleibner slices his finger open and shortly thereafter dies of septicemia. I hate when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> the next death is poor Mr. Bleibner's down-on-his-luck nephew, Rupert Bleibner, who uh, comes to Egypt from the South Seas to ask his rich uncle for money. Turned down, Rupert returns to New York, at which point he promptly kills himself. And then, if that weren't enough, one Mr. Schneider of the Metropolitan Museum He's another member of the expedition, and he has previously known the Bleibners, but then he oops, dies from tetanus, which I'm going to just Oof, say, yeah. it seems like really the least pleasant of all of the ways to go in that series. Yeah, I have that to say, said in the yeah, in, you mean in the adaptation, right? I mean, it's the same mean method of death in yeah. both the story and the adaptation. But that, the, if if for nothing else, that episode is a really good public service announcement for keeping up with your tetanus shot. Because oh my goodness, like, yes. get your boosters, people, because you do not want to have that happen. He there's a, no. a lovely little tidbit that he breaks <laughs> his jaw because his jaw muscles convulse so much that they break his jawbone, which is just horrifying. And we get to see part of it, too. Yeah, it's a grizzly. Although, I would also note, we don't see it, but um, Mr. Bleibner, in part of the septicemia treatments, has his arm sawed off, off screen. And that's only in the episode, right? I don't think that detail is in. Yes, no, it's it's only in the episode, thankfully. As if the septicemia wasn't bad enough, he he, he also gets his arm sawed off. The rare confluence of The Walking Dead, perhaps, and Agatha Christie's Poirot, um, (laughs) (laughs) in which characters get arms sawed off in the effort to save them from death. Um, so, so those are the victims. And as we said, there, there are four of them. So, so we've got four dead people. Let's get into the suspects. And the first suspect is, is very interesting. That is the curse of Menhur-Ra, the Egyptian pharaoh in question, whose tomb has been opened. And this tomb had not been opened since ancient Egyptian times when it was sealed. And as the British Museum's own cursed mummy can attest, um, in Egypt, there be curses for those who disrupt sacred spaces. I want to take off on a minor tangent here. There is a real-life parallel to this short story, and it has to be the direct inspiration for the short story itself, because one year before this story was published was when the very, very famous Mummy's Curse of those who opened up King Tut's tomb happened. 
That was in 1922. This group of British archaeologists opened up King Tut's tomb. And one of the people who did was actually the fourth Earl of Carnarvon, who lives in none other than Highclere Castle. Yes, the location for Downton Abbey, for the upstairs part of Downton Abbey. And why do they not film the downstairs part of Downton Abbey at Highclere Castle? Because it is actually chock full of Egyptian stuff, Egyptian paraphernalia from Lord Carnarvon's Egyptology days. So Lord Carnarvon actually got a cut while shaving on his cheek, and the cut became infected, and he died in very much the same way as poor Mr. Blydner who slices his finger open. There's just a lot of parallels between these two cases, and anyone who was reading it in the sketch magazine, of course, would have thought of the King Tut business, which was well, still going on it, when the magazine, he, when this story was even published. He, it's mentioned It's mentioned in the second paragraph. I mean, sure. just the discovery of King Tut's tomb. So, I mean, yeah. This is sort of like, like, it's like when a fictional version of something is written in a story, and they kind of reference the real life one. So it's like, oh, right, okay, she's doing her spin on the King Tut pharaoh's curse and there are other pharaohs that people claim are cursed but this that is the most famous one superstition and superstitious belief which we'll get to in general is very important in this story so perhaps it was the curse after all that killed all these poor british gentlemen british and american gentlemen i should say yes alternately there are a number of other characters in this (laughs) none of them are ever really made that suspicious but just to quickly go through them because they're people who are there and not dead mm-hmm. there is which is an important factor in being a suspect <laughs> there's dr toswell who he's quote-unquote a minor official of the british museum Ooh, um, tell and me more. He, he, <laughs> i know it was so exciting captain hastings though is actually quite impressed by his look that's right that's right <laughs> that's like noted yeah yeah um but he's presumably Presumably a competitor with Mr. Schneider, um, given that they're in competing institutions. Yeah, there's a lot of British Museum versus Metropolitan Museum of Art. Who's gonna Who's gonna win? Who cares? Perhaps, but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> it's even more so that it's way more there in the episode. I would know. It is. Like yeah. if 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 you don't care in the story, it's way more brought up in the episode. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So then we have Harper, yeah, who's Mr. Bleibner's recently hired secretary, and he basically just wants to get the hell out of there until Poirot very, you know, nicely reminds him that, oh, actually, Rupert killed himself in New York. So, like, really escaping Egypt's not going to help you. It's kind of like the supposedly new thing that the um, Paranormal Activity movies were doing in that houses aren't haunted, people are haunted. Ghosts or spirits oh. actually travel with a person from place to place. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> Creepy. Apparently Christy was doing it first um, as we as we find with, with so many. Yeah, things. we find out constantly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we have two more. Um, one is Dr. Ames, who is the expedition's doctor, who's quite busy, although not not necessarily doing <laughs> such a great job. And we'll, we'll certainly get into that. Or, so, or, or, or is <laughs> he? Or is he, yeah. Um, and then the final suspect is Hassan, the native of Egypt, who is the devoted servant of Sir Willard. And he warns Poirot and Hastings of great evil in the air. He wants them to take Willard's son, Guy, who has come to continue his father's work the hell out of there and just skip town and get out of what seems to be a toxic environment, perhaps literally. Who knows what was in that tomb, I suppose. Yeah. So let's take a look at the world Great as evil. it seems to be before we get into how Poirot solves this thing. After the death of her husband, and of course, 
two other men. Lady Willard enlists the services of Poirot to help investigate the nature of her husband's death. I guess to see if there's really a curse, but mostly because her beloved son has decided that he is leaving Oxford to go to Egypt to continue his father's work. And she does not want him to get cursed. Understandably. So, um, <laughs> understandably. So, much to Hastings' shock, Poirot tells her that he very much believes in the force of superstition and that, of course, he will take her case. Poirot first contacts New York to determine the details of the death of Rupert Bleibner, and then he tells Hastings that they are off to go to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt themselves. And once they get there, they find that not only is something very, very wrong with this expedition, but that yet another person (laughs) has died, and that, of course, is our poor victim of tetanus, Mr. Schneider. And nothing connects the deaths, or nothing seems to connect the deaths, and as far as anyone knows, none of the victims acted with disrespect towards the antiquities, although, let's be honest, they, they probably are, um, but we, we don't they're see tomb any. They're tomb-raiding. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're tomb-raiding, <laughs> and it's the 1920s, and they're, they're British people raiding tombs in Egypt in the 1920s. I'm sure there's plenty of disrespect <laughs> Might be to disrespectful. Yeah. Perhaps this curse actually, there's, there's more to it than we would expect in a Christie story. But if we did expect that, we are wrong because the Christie rule about superstition, which we've already come into contact with, is that superstition is not real. Christie is a rational thinker and her stories all work very rationally. So put another way, curses don't kill people. People kill people. (laughs) (laughs) So let's let's get to how clues are set up because it's very clean in a weird way that she does it in this story. Using pure hard logic and none of this hippy-dippy superstitious nonsense. Right. There's some nonsense towards the end, but <laughs> mm-hmm. that's mostly that's mostly just to catch the criminal, you know. So I think our first clue is that what we've already mentioned is that Poirot tells Lady Willard, quote, I too believe in the force of superstition, one of the greatest forces the world has ever known. Hastings reacts exactly as the reader probably would, and he writes, I looked at him in surprise. I should never have credited Poirot with being superstitious, but the little man was obviously in earnest. (laughs) So what can we deduce from this? Other than the fact that obviously Poirot isn't superstitious. And actually, if you actually read what the sentence says, he doesn't say he is. He says he believes in the force of it. And he's very much earnest in believing that. So we should know right off the top that he believes someone is murdering people and throwing off the scent by playing into other people's superstitions and fears surrounding Egyptian archaeology. And that's typical, Christy, where you have to read very carefully. So we're parsing words here, but I believe in the force of superstition is a very different statement from I believe in superstition. I, I love that clue. I love being forced to read closely. So right. the second clue is the concise and yet way too detailed accounting that we get of the end of Rupert Leibner's life, and that is the down-on-his-luck nephew who kills himself in New York. We get a lot of information about him, even though Lady Willard tells us that he wasn't really part of the expedition. And, for example, we find out that he worked in the South Pacific before going to Egypt, and we're told that he's headed to Egypt because, quote, I have a good friend there I can borrow from, end quote. We also know that his, quote, skinflint of an uncle, end quote, turned him away, and we know that he wrote a suicide note with some curious phrases. Namely, he despondently referred to himself as a leper and an outcast and thought he would be better off dead. So the deduction here is that if we're getting this much information about this character compared to most of the other characters who we get 
basically m- not much more than their name and their job description. We know that this... Right, especially when we're... Especially when the person that hired um, Poirot, Lady Willard, is mostly concerned about her son, Guy. Like, that is right. the primary concern of the case, is that Poirot protect Guy. And we know nothing about Guy, but all of a sudden we get all of this information about Rupert. About his nephew, yeah. So that's the... the uh, an astute reader will realize that this information is being given to us because it's crucial, because otherwise it just wouldn't be there. That's deduction one. Then, in terms of reading carefully here, we know that Rupert Bleibner referred to visiting a good friend in Egypt, but then described his uncle as a skinflint. So the assumption most people have made is that the good friend he was going to visit was his uncle. But would you really describe your good friend as a skinflint? No. So who was he really (laughs) going to visit? That is a a mystery that would be apparent to an astute reader who would then be trying to figure that out. Then there's also Christie's use of some curious phrases, as well as the presence of a letter at all, which again, anytime there is a letter in in a Christie story, it is to be examined as closely as possible. That should be a clue to to look at this letter. And I actually love this deduction because it hinges on reading carefully, but also thinking about the literal versus the metaphorical meaning of words. And right. um, so what we ultimately find out is that when Rupert Bleibner referred to himself as a leper, most people, when they use that word, they're using it metaphorically because there aren't many people suffering from leprosy anymore. Perhaps it was a little easier to make this Especially deduction in... in 1923. I think it's really hard to get the, get there in 2017. I think that might be the first time I said 2017 this year, which is a little scary. The future is now, Terrifying. apparently. But um, he perhaps literally meant it. And that's the that's the deduction that, that Poirot eventually makes, that someone managed to fool him into thinking he literally had leprosy and would not be able to live much longer or certainly interact with any of the people in in his life. Well, and the other important clue to tell us that is the South Pacific clue. This is all in one paragraph, Mm -hmm. by the way, like all information packed into a single paragraph. But, um, you know, the South Pacific at that time would have been home to a number of leper colonies. So, I mean, we can piece together that's at the beginning of the paragraph and the leper suicide note is at the end of the paragraph. And if you're being, you know, very astute about it, you circle back to the beginning of the paragraph and it's all in it. Because when I think of the South Pacific, I think of leprosy. (laughs) (laughs) You say South Pacific. Remember the word association from that other short story? I mean, if you play a word association with me and you say South Pacific, (laughs) immediately I say leprosy. You don't jump to Rogers and Hammerstein. Oh, oh, well, I was actually just because I our brains work the same way, and I was actually I was honestly just about to ask you which song from South Pacific do you think of when people say South Pacific? And for me, it's obviously Bally High. Bally High. Oh, some enchanted, some enchanted evening. Some enchanted. Okay, fair enough. Not, I'm going to wash that Actually, man right out of my head. No, I was going to say, it's. I'm going to say, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair, like, might be really up there, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that derailed. We have a third clue. And when Poirot and Hastings arrive um, at the site in Egypt, what becomes very clear is that Poirot did not expect to find on their arrival that Mr. Schneider had died of tetanus. And he says, quote, Mon Dieu, said Poirot in a very low voice. I, I do not understand this. It is horrible. Tell me, monsieur, there is no doubt that it was tetanus. The fact that Poirot is actually thrown off guard by this 
yeah. is surprising. Whenever because Poirot is thrown off really, guard, that, that means that something significant has happened or is happening. Right. And so what becomes, I think, pretty clear from both his surprise and from the question is that he showed up expecting that even though there had been apparently three dead people, that this was now over. Because, you know, if it was a curse, right, you would think that Poirot would be expecting the possibility of another death, but it's very clear within a few sentences that he wasn't. So the fact that he's surprised means that he has to have thought that the chain of deaths ended where it was supposed to end, which thus has to mean that he believed that Rupert was the end point in the death chain. And also, the question about tetanus is important because tetanus, even in the 1920s, had an anti-serum. We know that the death of Mr. Schneider is is significant and somehow different from the deaths that have preceded it. So clue number four, still on the Mr. Schneider front, Poirot really doubles down on asking Dr. Ames if he's sure it was tetanus, asking about the anti-serum, asking if anyone else in the camp had tetanus, et cetera, et cetera. And after he's gone through that and, and gotten you know pretty much negative responses on all of that, he then t- seems to turn superstitious and asks, was any act committed by those four men which might seem to denote disrespect to the spirit of men and everyone is horrified that Poirot seems to, in fact, be superstitious. We should know better, of course. And the deduction is that something is just really, really off with the tetanus death. And now Poirot is, you know, in that he's not getting the answers that he needs. He's essentially playing a game with the murderer and looking to see what happens when, you know, he continues to play into or by the curse theory. And also, Dr. Ames clearly did it. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. How is that clear from, from... I guess I guess in that he... All of his questions are, are pointed to the doctor. Every one of them. <laughs> every one of them. That at this point, we... The doctor... It had become such a focal point that... Yeah. It's unclear yeah. that other people are even in the room, even though all of the characters at this point are in the same... Um, conversation. Vicinity, None of the other yeah. characters <laughs> actually have any involvement in it. Um, <laughs> so sorry. Spoiler, friends. Spoiler, um, yeah. So our fifth clue, though, is this is another her packing them in in like a few lines. Um, but Poirot has a yeah, conversation. Yeah, I mean, this is not them. a long. This is not a long story, and it actually has a a quite robust puzzle to it with, it do- with really lots of does. clues and ins and outs. But it doesn't feel overwhelming or overstuffed either. It's it's impressive how much she pulls off in, you know, less than 20 pages. Right. It's efficient, I would say. Paro has this conversation with Mr. Harper, and he, again, he's just had the conversation about the tetanus. And, again, keep in mind that he's gone there to protect you know, his client's son and not any of these other people. But instead, in the conversation with Mr. Harper, he returns immediately to the subject of Rupert Bleibner. And we find out in the course of this conversation that, A, his uncle told him that he would never get a single son from him, ever. Um, B, he mentioned something vague was, like, bothering him, but not that anything was seriously wrong with his health. And C, his uncle Bleibner, um, despite saying that he was going to leave all of his money to archaeological causes, apparently didn't have a will. So every one of these things gives very obvious clues, because if we combine it with our earlier information, we can deduce three things. One, if Rupert was penniless and Bleibner didn't give him any money... 
how did he get back to New York? Somebody had to have given him money to get back to New York. In other words, it's back to this idea of the quote-unquote good friend who's also at the site. Um, unless he and, had, unless he had the sort of magical funds for worldwide worldwide travel, a la Rory Gilmore. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, the, like just like oh, I don't have a job and like live out of a suitcase, but can magically fly back and forth to London <laughs> repeatedly. Yes, sure. Just transatlantic <laughs> jaunts up up and down. But oh no, I don't have a job. Sorry. Yeah, maybe she has. Maybe she has a TARDIS, like or some kind of teleporting <laughs> properties. Anyway, well, let's just let's just pack. Can we pile on another reference to another? I know. Another, I try, I try. Let's just try. Let's just make another connection. Well, you know, <laughs> Agatha Christie. Brewster, anyone? Agatha, Agatha Christie <laughs> packs in her clues, so you know we can pack, pack in our pop culture references. Um, additionally, if Bleibner wasn't going to give Rupert any money and he didn't have a will, Rupert's going to give it like get his money anyway. So there's that, and then mm-hmm. third. He was having a minor health thing, maybe. Yeah, he said something was bothering, but I think he probably would have been a little more upset if it had been leprosy. (laughs) So, you know, there's no indication that he, at the time, had this diagnosis, but somehow between leaving the camp and ending up landing in New York, he has somehow ended up believing or having been diagnosed that he had leprosy. So yeah, I mean, taken together, someone someone other than his uncle gave him money. He was Rupert was actually going to inherit mm-hmm. a great deal of money from his uncle who didn't have a will, and so, you know, someone gave Somebody him medical advice <laughs> yes. that made him believe he had leprosy. I, I, this is all pointing to Doctor Ames. So Doctor Ames did it, but the reckoning <laughs> is is quite a reckoning because Poirot really goes full superstition here. He basically decides to go deep into magic mode, having brought with him to Egypt this book entitled "The Magic of the Egyptians and the Chaldeans," and everyone basically thinks he's lost it, including Hastings, since Hastings never really knows what's going on inside Poirot's head. Poor Hastings. No. So the entire archaeological crew see the shadow of Anubis, who is the jackal-headed god of departing souls. Uh, as a shadow on the side of a tent headed toward Dr. Ames's personal tent. Poirot then starts scribbling magical signs in the sand around his tent while lecturing anyone who will listen on witchcraft, black and white magic, Ka, the Book of the Dead, etc., etc. After that, understandably, has really, really a terrible headache, and he really needs a rest, and so as if by magic, One of Hassan, his descends. Yes, he, he, exactly. He needs it. He's he jonesing it. for it. He is. And by magic, one is brought to him by Hassan. Um, He's carrying chamomile tea. And so whilst Hastings is waxing rhapsodic about the glorious scenery of, uh, you know, Egypt, Poirot starts convulsing near an empty cup. Mm -hmm. And Hastings runs frantically to get to Dr. Ames because obviously his beloved friend is dying, except... Per usual, fool Hastings once, fool Hastings again and again and again, because actually Poirot is perfectly alive. Just shame on him every time. (laughs) Every time. Poirot's totally alive because he poured the tea into a chemist bottle to be later analyzed for poison. Dr. Ames then moves very suddenly, and Poirot tells Hastings to hold him, but Hastings instead lunges in front of him in order to protect Poirot, which is really endearing, but 
unfortunately, Poirot was actually telling him to hold him because Dr. Ames kills himself with a cyanide capsule. One of those gosh darn cyanide capsule suicides. <laughs> Hate that. Um, <laughs> you just happened to have on hand. <laughs> yep, yep. Which was the Christie novel or story that we read that had the ring, the cyanide ring? It was in one of the thrillers, obviously. It, was it The Secret Adversary? It must have. It would have had to have been The Secret Adversary. I think it was in The Secret Adversary. We get we get ye old cyanide capsule, but in, in a ring, which is a little bit more elegant. We later find out that Sir Willard, and that's, again, the first victim, his heart attack was just a heart attack. So his death had nothing to do with Dr. Ames's murderous plot. Bleibner, Uncle Bleibner, was, in fact, poisoned. That's the one who got the cut on his thumb and then got septicemia. Rupert Bleibner, the nephew, killed himself because Dr. Ames told him that his rash, which was essentially just eczema, at least that's what they say in the episode, was, in fact, leprosy. And Mr. Schneider, that of the gruesome tetanus death, may or may not have died just because Dr. Ames got the taste for killing and holding up this idea that there is a superstition that was picking off the crew one by one. Poirot's, in the episode, Poirot is sure of that. In the story, there's there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity, it seems. Because, right. Because they don't get a chance to talk to Dr. Ames, obviously, since he's dead. So Dr. Ames' motive, and this is the, the weakest link in the story, I think, because I think it's a little unclear why Dr. Ames would be so motivated to kill Rupert Bleibner, who had who had just inherited all that money from his uncle. But it turns out that Dr. Ames was the good friend who Rupert was going to visit in Egypt, and not just a good friend, but the beneficiary of all of Rupert Bleibner's money in the event of his death due to the fact that, uh, quote, in a fit of drunken merriment, Bleibner had made a jocular will leaving, as he put it in in this note, this sort of informal will, my cigarette case you admire so much and everything else of which I die possessed, which will be principally debts to my good friend Robert Ames, who once saved my life from drowning. And that's that information is crucial. Obviously, I, I understand that it can't be given to us any earlier than when we have the solution explained to us, but the leap that we're supposed to realize that the good friend of Rupert Bleibner's was also his beneficiary because of this informal will of a jokey note is right. It's a a bigger leap than than seems fair. You know what I think? I think it's that the puzzle of this is set up so that you can pretty easily figure out who that it's the doctor did. Yeah. Who did it? It's just that you're told the, the motivation. why is not as the, you don't. The yeah. why is the, yeah. That that's that's fair actually because in some of these mystery puzzles, the why leads to the who. But in this case, you can get to the who without the why. And then I guess part of the suspense is figuring out the why, and it's okay to be told that at the end. That's that's fair. Yeah, I mean the the only other thing I would note though is where was this will filed? It seemed like it was like scrawled on a bar napkin. Where is this existing that this is actually going to give this doctor this fortune? Oh yeah, I mean in many of these these Christie stories, especially we've talked about how these stories are a bit looser and don't always follow the format, and that's a good thing. I think one of the detriments to the story format is that. She often didn't really care if the real-life technicality is coming from, you know, would you actually be able to convict this person? Would any of, you know, would their plot actually be doable? She kind of didn't, just didn't seem to really care. I think for a novel, she would have been 
a bit more circumspect about tying up those loose ends, but no, it's absurd. I mean, you wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't think you'd be able to use that note and say, Oh, look, he, I mean, it had obviously been years before. Um, I mean, maybe, but it's, it's very questionable, very questionable to, to murder three people and then yourself. Well, or to Off of a note, a note scribbled like at the end of a poker game. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Kind of stupid. Um, so, although I will say that the episode, this, the Suchet episode does a slightly better job of setting that up because there's a lot of emphasis placed on how the doctor and Rupert Bleibner and the secretary, there are a bunch of Yaleys. Yeah, because it's what Lady Willard is particularly angry about. She goes into a weird rant about it to Poirot when Poirot is taking the case, and she says, quote, all those Americans, all those young men from Yale. Yeah, as though she kind they're of... like usurping her son and her husband's role. I guess Lady Willard just has a vendetta against Yale. But they do a good job of establishing that they all knew each other for about a decade and were good friends. And like the idea that there was something like a note written that would informally be a will like that is is a little bit more it's a, it com- it comes a little bit less out of nowhere in the episode than it does in the story not much but a little bit right yeah it does what we both appreciated beyond the mystery puzzle itself and and how efficient it was was the travel sequence when mm-hmm. Poirot and Hastings go to Egypt, which is funny, both in the short story and in the episode. Wait, I actually, sure I laughed aloud, and I rarely laugh aloud um, reading Christie. I, you know, usually it's more of a silent chuckle, but um, <laughs> I, this is worth reading. It's not, it's not very long. This is Hastings describing Monsieur Poirot once they've arrived in Egypt and they have to get to the excavation site, which is somewhat remote. I pass over the spectacle of Poirot on a camel. He started by groans and lamentations and ended by shrieks, gesticulations, and invocations to the Virgin Mary and every saint in the calendar. In the end, he descended ignominiously and finished the journey on a diminutive donkey. I must admit that a trotting camel is no joke for the amateur. I was stiff for several days. And Poirot is also, he goes on several rants about sand. They preserve the line in the episode when Hastings says, well, isn't there sand in Belgium? And Poirot basically sputters, not in Brussels. Not in Brussels. <laughs> you know, he obviously was a city policeman when he was there and, and probably born and bred in Brussels or at least some other city. And he carries <laughs> and he carries a little dust brush. Yeah. It's, it's also preserved in the episode. He carries a dust brush, which he's constantly swiping at himself with. And then I really, really liked his complaint to Hastings. Hastings really is kind of in love with the scenery. Mm-hmm. And in this story, he says, And my boots, he wailed, regard them, Hastings, my boots of neat patent leather, usually so smart and shining. See, the sand is inside them, which is painful, and outside them, which outrages the eyesight. Also the heat, it causes my mustaches to become limp, but limp. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should continue, too, because it's really funny. So then this is Hastings speaking. Look at the Sphinx, I urged. Even I can feel the mystery and the charm it exhales. Poirot looked at it discontentedly. It has not the air happy, he declared. 
how could it? Half buried in sand in that untidy fashion. Ah, this cursed sand. And then we <laughs> actually, then they go into the camel ride that I that I read from. It's just a it's it's a great little sequence. <laughs> Monsieur Poirot. What he's left of him, yes. And I'll also note that this is a great example of Christie's interest in archaeology and the Middle East that completely predates her second marriage to Max Mallowan. I suspect that that shared interest was something that they connected over rather than her merely acquiring the interest once they were married since she was such a traveler right. already. It's, it, it's really surprising because obviously we'll later get, you know, books set in the Middle East, but this is very early for this. And it's also just like a little bit, I mean, I think she's a little bit siding with Hastings in this, in like wanting to describe the setting and the pyramids. And, oh yeah. She, and I, um, I mentioned this on a previous episode, I know, but she, you know, she had her coming out in Cairo. She was there for several months she loved it and she loved traveling in general. And of course she and Archie did that round the world trip in 1922, which was so unusual. It's unusual to do a round the world trip in 2017. Uh, You know, imagine doing it in 1922. She certainly was uh, a well-traveled and curious person well before she started doing those yearly jaunts to the Middle East. The, The Suchet episode does a great job of taking everything that works and is efficient and pleasing about the mystery puzzle and portraying it on the screen as they do. They didn't have to add much, you know, in a lot of these short story adaptations, there is, there are action sequences that have to be built onto it or characters that have to be fleshed out or added. And they didn't have to do all that much. The one thing that they did do much to, I think our mutual delight since, since both Catherine and I are huge Miss Lemon fans was to give Miss Lemon <laughs> a little bit of a story. Although the, the, this is a double-edged sword because the story itself is... I, 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 really pathetic. Really pathetic. But uh, essentially in that, this story is very much about superstition and the force of superstition in that superstitious belief will make people do some crazy things. Not only murder, apparently, but also some more innocent activities. We see Miss Lemon dealing out tarot cards at her desk early on mm-hmm. in the episode, and she kind of shoves them into a drawer before well, Mr. Poro can see them. And she gets death at the top. <laughs> yeah. Her expression when she sees the death card, I mean, as like all of Pauline Moran's expressions, is, is just exquisite. So, so, you know, we're like, why is, why is Miss Lemon dealing out tarot cards? What's going on there? And then we later see her and Hastings using a planchette. Which is delightful. Which is, that's a great scene too, which is essentially, it's like a Ouija board, except a Ouija board. Instead of the Ouija board going from letter to letter, there's a pen underneath the planchette so that when you're moving it, it actually is drawing something or writing something and she claims to see a C and an L in the scribble that's been written. Hastings wonders if maybe it's Arabic. It's nothing. <laughs> it's definitely nothing. But um, It's definitely nothing. <laughs> so it's this confusing thing. Why is Miss Lemon into all the superstitions? It's easier to believe that Hastings would be into that or believing something like that. And we get our answer when Poirot just flat out asks Hastings, what is going on with Miss Lemon? And Hastings informs Poirot that our poor Miss Lemon had a cat named Catherine the Great. <laughs> who who died and But it's a pun. It's a pun, Catherine the Great. <laughs> what, wait, how is it a pun? Because the cat liked to sleep in the fireplace. Oh. Alright. 
Like, are you are you getting that from anything, or like did you just think of that? It's in the episode. He says the cat because the cat liked to sleep in the cat in the green. Oh, he does because she liked I, to oh, sleep in the that. fireplace. I missed that. Yeah. Oh, okay, so it's like it's like Cinderella. <laughs> speaking is speaking of. It's a Cinderella exactly, cat. It's exactly like um, it exactly. So she's is. trying to communicate with her cat. Like she's trying to make a connection on the other side. And what I, I will say this that I in our last podcast episode for the Big Four. I complained that Miss Lemon in that episode, which was in the final season slash series, had been made into a cat lady. So fair play to the Suchet series. Apparently that was a consistent characteristic of Miss Lemon throughout. So she was a cat lady then. She was a cat lady later. I just had not remembered that from the first time we watched these episodes. And Poirot presents her with this little cat figurine at the end of the episode and tells her that if she holds it in her hand when she goes to sleep she will be able to commune with Catherine the Great in her dreams and Miss Lemon is thrilled with this gift and seems to have every intention of using it and I think you were wondering Catherine whether that was just a cheap little souvenir he bought at the airport or or if they'd actually stolen an antiquity or or did he just perhaps treat the pharaohs with that disrespect he was asking people about and steal this figurine from essentially is Poro a grave robber perhaps (laughs) we'll never know we'll never know it's actually a nice note that it ends on too because he reiterates to captain hastings that he he wasn't doing it to be mean or whatever spirited to miss lemon it's that he actually does believe in the force of superstition he legitimately gives it to her to make her feel better. Yeah, well, and it, what it, what that really boils down to is that he believes in the power of faith, right? He believes that right. people, yeah. if people believe in something, the the something isn't what's important. It's it's the belief, and that can go in good ways and bad ways. And obviously, we mainly see it in bad ways in the course of the Poirot series and the overall Christie series. But occasionally, it can have good moments too and Poirot is a man of faith there are several points throughout the series in which it's very clear that yes he's Catholic and he seems to believe in God and faith is real and faith is important to him and it's nice that that doesn't contradict his logical little gray cells and his his belief in the rational and his veneration of the rational he can have his cake and eat it too and that's a nuanced way of living and being a grown-ass man and Poirot is nothing if not a (laughs) grown-ass man So that's our episode for this week. Join us next week when we will discuss another short story, another Poirot within the Poirot Investigates collection. That is the jewel robbery at the Grand Metropolitan. As always, you can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. We would also love for you to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We are on Instagram as well at All About the Dame. And please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps us get the word out, and we would like to see what you think. So until next time, bye. Bye. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.